chapter 22, verses 1 to 14. And again, Jesus spoke to them in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son and sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. Again, he sent other servants, saying, Tell those who are invited, See, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and my fat calves have been slaughtered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his farm, another to his business. And while the rest seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and killed them, the king was angry, and he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then he said to his servants, The wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go, therefore, to the main roads and invite invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. And he said to him, Friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. Then the king said to the attendants, Bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks Thanks be to God. Hallelujah. Join me if you would please in prayer. Lord, we do give you praise and thanks for this day. Lord, thank you for calling us out of our beds and out of our sleep, Lord, and into the gathered worship of your bride this morning. Thank you, Lord, for our worship so far this morning, God. Thank you for our singing and our confession. Lord, thank you for our liturgy. Lord, we pray, God, that you would be honored, Lord, by the continuation of our worship this morning, Lord, of you, Lord, through hearing your word read and proclaimed, Lord, through coming to the table and making thanks for the work of Christ on the cross. Lord, we pray, God, that you would Uh, Pour out your spirit among us and allow us to worship you in spirit and in truth. And we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Well, as we uh, continue to, or as we move into looking at this text today, our, our text, our context, is the same that it has been for the last few weeks. And this context will actually continue for the next few weeks. Uh, So Jesus is still interacting with the religious leaders after they had questioned his authority. Remember, he rides into Jerusalem on a donkey, Palm Sunday. He overturns the money changers in the temple. And then they come to him and they say, who gives you this authority? By whose authority are you doing these things? And then all this begins to play out. And so like the previous parables that we've looked at over the last couple of weeks, the parable of the two sons and the parable of the wicked tenants, The parable of the wedding feast also proclaims the transfer of the kingdom of heaven from ethnic Israel to those who have faith in Christ 
and make up the church as the true Israel of God. But as we begin to unpack this parable and its lesson, I want to start by noting a, a really interesting threefold nature of calling that Jesus uses to actually frame this parable, particularly in the first ten verses. So if we understand that Scripture teaches that Christ was crucified before the foundations of the world, a, a position that we hold strongly to here at Christ Community Church, right? and as you should through Scripture, right? But, but if we proclaim this, then this three-part repetition that we see here, this repetition of sending out servants and who these servants will symbolically represent. This repetition shows us the Father's great desire to dwell with his people in the kingdom that he has prepared for them in the Son who was crucified before the foundations of the world. So I want to look at this symbolic threefold framing of calling. So this first group of servants that Jesus references is representative of the patriarchs, of Moses, of Joshua, and so on. God's people, we see through the history of the people of Israel, they are called out, they're covenanted with multiple times, right? whether that is through the creation covenant with Adam, or that's through the covenant with Noah, or then the covenant with Abraham, and then Isaac, and then Jacob, and then on and on and on. We see that they're covenanted with, then they're redeemed from slavery, and then they're brought into the promised land. And so Jesus says, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son and sent his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, but they would not come. So in almost every wedding, some weddings don't do this, but in almost every single wedding, invitations are usually sent out long prior to the celebration itself, usually. In our current wedding culture in the West, in particular, we, we have a practice here of even sending out what we would call pre-invites, which are called save the dates. Right? So these first servants, in a really cheesy way, I'm using a cheesy illustration here, but these first servants function sort of as a save the date right, for the upcoming nuptials of the son of the king. But notice in these first two verses, so it's not the first sentence there. It's Again, Jesus spoke to them in parables saying this. That, that is verse 1. But... In the first two sentences of this parable, Jesus utters something quite interesting in the language here. The servants are sent out to call those who were already invited. So with the coming of Christ in the incarnation, the son has now been sent to collect a bride for himself. The wedding feast is at hand. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. The celebration is about to begin. So the king has already invited those who are supposed to attend. They had even accepted the invitation. They had accepted the covenant. They had saved the date. They had RSVP'd. I'm done with that illustration now. But, however, when the event finally was upon them, they chose not to come. So, the king sends out a second group of servants who are representative of the prophets. So the call... He sends them out to call those initially invited again to come to the wedding feast. But their rejection of the invitation now intensifies. And so we read this in verses 4 through 7. So again, he sent other servants saying, tell those who are invited, look, I've prepared my dinner, right? My, my oxen have been killed. My fatted calves have been slaughtered. Everything is ready. The food is cooked. 
(laughs) Come, come to my wedding feast. Come to the feast of my son. But they paid him no attention. And they went off about their business. One went to his farm. One went and attended his other business. While some seized his servants, treated them shamefully, and even killed them. You'll notice in that last sentence there that it's almost word for word the same that we looked at last week in chapter 21, verse 35, in the parable of the wicked tenants, which says, And the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. This repetition is important. Jesus is making a point. But then he says this in verse 7. This time, the king doesn't respond like he did in the parable we saw last week. He doesn't respond like the master of the vineyard, by sending his son. Instead, the king goes and he kills them and he destroys their city and he burns it. And so Jesus says this in the next verse. He says, the king was angry and he sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. I made the comment last week and we made it a few times looking at Matthew, but Matthew and Isaiah are very intentionally closely linked. You can see this connection here of the exile. Chrysostom argues that this verse is is a prophecy concerning the destruction of Jerusalem, which would occur in A.D. 70. Again, we can see multiple methods of interpretation happening here, right? You have the Babylonian exile, but you also have a future fulfillment in the destruction of Jerusalem. But Chrysostom also helpfully notes, and he says, look, God, though, because this happens in A.D. 70, he continues to show patience toward them for an additional 40 years in order for the gospel to go forth. He gives them one more generation of people to repent and believe the work that God had done through Christ Jesus. But this violence that is shown by the king has been met by some to be, shall we say, unsavory as a reaction from God toward people that sin against him. Many just don't like it. They, they kind of ask themselves the question, you mean, you mean, wait a minute, you mean God actually responds in anger sometimes? Yeah. Right. They dislike, some, some commentators I was looking at dislike this so much that they have attempted to explain it away by other means. I want to give you two examples because they're absolutely outrageous. One commentator reacted so negatively against this verse in verse 7 that they went so far as to completely reinterpret the meaning of the entire parable. And they wrote this. They wrote that the son in this parable is not meant to be Jesus. Meaning that the king is not God. But rather the king is a vicious tyrant. So then, the improperly dressed man of the second half of the story is now instead heroically resisting the tyrant by remaining silent. Because he is the one who really trusts God. Talk about an absolute stretch. This other one, that, that commentator has been rightly rejected completely, right? At least by me, right? If you, interpret, if you take that interpretation, then let's chat afterwards. But another commentator had a similar violent response to God's violence in this verse and writes this, that Christians, all Christians must protest against these disturbing features. We should revolt against an inhumane and cruel God. Apparently... Apparently, both of these commentators have neglected to read any of the rest of Scripture. Or, or 
Note how God responds to sin. Which in doing so misses the entire point of God responding to all sin by placing it upon the shoulders of Christ as he hung upon the cross. But I digress. Let's get back to the parable. So, you have Moses and Joshua and so on, the patriarchs. Then you have the prophets. But as we move on in the rest of this parable, we see that God offers mercy even in the midst of wrath. So the king deals with the unworthy rebels. He burns their city. He exiles them to Babylon. But the feast is still prepared. The tables are laden with food. So the king decides to send a third group out with an invitation. And this time they are sent with fresh invitations. They're sent with invitations to go out and to invite as many people as they can find. Both bad people and good people. Just go and invite them to the wedding feast. This third group is meant to represent the apostles. And even ourselves as the church. Go with the invitation. So go and invite those who were not initially invited, but now should be. And so he says this, starting in verse 8. So then he said to his servants, the wedding feast is ready, but those invited were not worthy. Go, therefore, to the main roads. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. Go, therefore, to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. God sends these servants, he sends us, to invite all who appear to be outside of the scope of God's interest. Appear being the key word there. He sends us to invite sinful Israelites like the prostitutes and the tax collectors and even to Gentiles. Basically, anyone and everyone who is far off from the king. This is represented by this phrase, go into the main roads and invite everyone to the wedding feast. The main roads are the places where sinful humanity dwells. These are the highways and the hedges, if you will. Paul tells us in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 13, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. That's what this is. So that's the framework of the parable. But these final six verses, starting in verse 9, all the way through verse 14, it's in these final six verses that Jesus illustrates once again this lesson of what has been coined the great inversion, right, in the kingdom of heaven, this Christ flipping every expectation on its head. And it's a lesson that he began all the way back in Matthew 13, which we considered many weeks ago, which is just a chapter of parables. So not only will the first be last and the last be first in the kingdom of heaven, and not only will those who believe and obey be brought into the kingdom over and above those who do not believe and obey, regardless of their lineage, and not only will the vineyard owner lease the vineyard out of the kingdom to other tenants who will care for it and see that it bears fruit, but the wedding feast will now be offered to all nations indiscriminately, regardless if they are an ethnic Israelite or if they're a dirty, no-good, sinful, rotten Gentile like you and me. So, as we attempt to unpack the final part of this lesson of this parable for a fourth week in a row now, let's take note of how Jesus builds this lesson to a crescendo, the musical term of 
building up to a high point, right? So beginning first with this aspect of bad and good in verses 9 and 10. So again, he says, Go therefore to the main roads and invite to the wedding feast as many as you find. And those servants went out into the roads and gathered all whom they found, both bad and good. So the wedding hall was filled with guests. Notice again, these third servants, representative of us, representative of the apostles, the entire church, are meant to go out into highways and into the main roads to all the nations to gather all they find. This phrase, they gathered all whom they found, refers to a multitude that gladly responds to the invitation to the wedding feast. John picks up on this exact theme in, John, in Revelation chapter 19 where he says this, Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. And the angel said to me, write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. It's no coincidence that that passage comes up after the complete and utter fall of Babylon. But this is also where Jesus picks back up on the lesson from Matthew 13 from the parable of the net. Where he says this, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. And when it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted good into containers, but threw away the bad. So it will be at the close of the age. The angels will come and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So then, with the context of the parable of the net and this command here in Matthew 22 to gather all whom you meet, if the invitation to the wedding feast, the invitation, if it is a general all-call to anyone who hears it, then this means that the invitation, the gospel itself, has no preconditions placed upon it in order to be invited to believe it. Meaning that there is nothing that anyone can do in order to obtain an invitation to the feast. Because the invitation is a gift that is freely given to all who hear it. In Pauline terms, this is meant to this means that God redeems us by grace through faith in Christ alone, not by merit or credentials or ethnic lineage. This is what Jesus is trying to get across in these parables. Matthew Henry writes here, he says that believers, in casting out the net of the gospel, both enclose Good fish and bad fish. But the Lord knows all that are His. Meaning that as the net of the gospel is tossed out into the world and then drawn back in like a dragnet, the mission of the church will undoubtedly gather both disreputable people and reputable people alike. And by returning to the lesson of this parable of the net from Matthew 13, Jesus is reminding us that both the bad and the good will be gathered together. And then, at the harvest... At the end of the age, God alone will sort them out, which is exactly what he illustrates in the next few verses with this man without the wedding garment. And so then, 
since there are no preconditions to receive an invitation of the kingdom, life in the kingdom does have conditions placed upon it. And all any of us can do, the only thing we have control over, is how we respond to the invitation of the gospel. As this interaction between the king and the guest without the wedding garments illustrates. This is the example of the bad that has been gathered in. But it is the king who determines those who are worthy to remain in the wedding hall. The servants are to simply go and issue the invitation to all they meet. And so we read this. But when the king came in to look at the guests, he saw there a man who had no wedding garment. And so he said to him, friend, how did you get in here without a wedding garment? But he was speechless. So then the king said to his attendants, bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Just like in Matthew 13, so it will be at the close of the age. The angels will come and separate out the good and the bad and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The initial interaction of the king between himself and this, and this man without a wedding garment by calling him friend, he shows that the king at least recognizes that this man has initially accepted the invitation to the feast. But this guest, one of the bad fish, he has insulted the king. He's insulted his son. He's insulted the occasion. Not because he happened to slip through the entrance and mistakenly missed the right dress code, but because he insults the king and the son in the wedding feast by flatly refusing to change his garments. And we see this by his silence. His silence proves his guilt. Augustine states here that the reason that the man is silent is because the one who questioned him is the only one to whom he could give no deceptive reply. He couldn't fake it anymore. Because he had refused the garments, his refusal was indefensible. And so then as we're looking at this, you know, the question that rightly comes up here is, okay, fine. What are the proper wedding garments? How do I obtain those wedding garments? It's no accident that all who, are called, all who follow Christ are called to be like Christ in all of his ways, particularly in his righteousness. In the kingdom of heaven, true disciples wear the garments of righteousness. And these garments are both the righteousness of Christ and a personal righteousness that comes by obedience to Christ. Paul tells the Galatians, he says, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ, so therefore there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. We have put on Christ. And then he tells the Corinthians, in chapter 1 of 1 Corinthians, he says, God is the source of your life in Christ, whom God made our wisdom and our righteousness, our sanctification, and our redemption. And then in Revelation, as we have already read in Revelation 19, the garment is also a personal righteousness that comes by obedience to Christ. John writes this again, Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. I skipped a verse last time. This is the next verse. And it was granted to the bride to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. 
Both are the required condition for life in the kingdom. Another way to say this, as we've been stating over the last few weeks, is this is the difference. This is the, the, the connection of belief and obedience to Christ. Belief in the message and obedience to it. So the reason why the bad prove themselves guilty in their speechlessness in front of God is because they have no righteousness to stand on. They have not put on Christ as their righteousness. And their personal righteousness apart from Christ is, as Isaiah says, a polluted garment. Or, as the KJV says, a filthy rag. And like all ruined and disgusting and gross garments, the only good that they're worth is to be thrown away, is into the burning trash heap, is into Gehenna, the place where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. The parable of the wedding feast restates Jesus' main point to the religious leaders for a third time. The kingdom is a gift. With the invite freely given and without preconditions, but life in the kingdom is very demanding. The gift calls us to respond to the invitation with righteousness and fruitfulness, or with belief and obedience. And so with both of those factors, the bad and the good being gathered in, and the expectation of belief and obedience, Jesus reaches the crescendo of this lesson when he simply states this at the end, for many are called, but few are chosen. Many are invited, but few are worthy to remain. Because of the language that we typically use in the church, especially as it relates to certain areas of theology, in particular, Reformed theology. This last verse, verse 14 of chapter 22, can be absolutely terrifying if we don't consider it properly. We use the language of calling and chosen almost like synonyms sometimes. But clarity of words is important in how we understand theology and how we understand how God works. This whole section fits so well with our Sunday school discussion from this morning. So let's do some clarification. So first, verses 14 and verse 8 are parallels in this passage. So listen again. I want to read them together. So then the king said to his servants, The wedding feast is ready, but those who were invited were not worthy. Many have been invited, but few are worthy to stay. Many are called, but few were chosen. Taking these two verses together, Jesus' point is that those who try to enter the kingdom without the proper garments of belief and repentance and obedience will be sorted out, rejected, and condemned by God at the end of the age. In verse 8, we read that all those who were initially invited had proven themselves to be not even worthy of the invitation itself because they did not change their garments. They didn't change their minds, as he said in the parable of the two sons. They had not borne fruit in keeping with righteousness and repentance. The only fruit they had produced was the rejection and the death of Christ. As Isaiah says in chapter 5, they only bore bad fruit and thorns. And so because they were proven to not be worthy of the invitation, the many have now been replaced with the few. And so blending all of these elements together, Jesus is making the distinction here that the called are the invited, but the chosen are those who hear the word of God, believe it, 
change their mind, put on Christ, and remain obedient. They persevere to the end and are saved. And so, as they were gathered around the foot of Mount Sinai after the Exodus, Yahweh tells the people of Israel, He says, If you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you will be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Peter picks up on this language very intentionally. And he applies it to the church. He applies it to all who have embraced Christ, who have believed and repented and are obedient, who have put Christ on as their righteousness. And he writes this, he says, But you, church, you are a chosen race. You are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Again, we discussed all of this this morning from Isaiah 44. Many are called, but few are chosen. God invites all kinds of people to his feast. And as scripture tells us, there will be those from every tribe and every tongue and every nation. Because the call to God's kingdom is broadcast widely to the main roads, to the highways and to the hedges. It goes out to all, both bad and good alike, until the wedding hall is filled. God calls humanity to himself, not because we are worthy, but because he is gracious. He calls both bad and good without terms or preconditions. Because again, there's nothing that any of us can do to merit the invitation. But it's in how we respond to the invitation that determines if we are simply called or if we are both called and chosen. So do we respond with belief in Christ and with repentance and with obedience to Christ? Or do we respond in silence and prove our lack of belief and prove that we have not put on Christ as our righteousness? Jesus' words in verse 14 serve as a reminder and as a warning. Again, many are invited, but few are chosen to remain. And so as we prepare to come to the table and to participate in a shadow of the great wedding feast of the Lamb to come, let us come in humility and let us properly discern the body and the blood of Christ. Let us come in faith and belief and repentance and obedience. Let us accept the invitation to the wedding feast and put on the wedding garments of Christ. And let us, as John proclaims in Revelation 19, let us rejoice and exult and give God the glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come. And we, as his bride, have made ourselves ready by putting him on as our righteousness. Amen. Amen.